All right, well, let me encourage you, if you have a Bible or a device of some sort with a Bible app on it, to open it with me to the Old Testament book of Ruth. If uh, you're looking in your Bibles, it's just, uh, just a little book right there towards the early books of your Old Testament. You know, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then you have Joshua, Judges, and then that little book of Ruth. So open whatever you have there. In addition, or uh, just regardless, if you'd also take out these message notes, they're inside your worship folder. You can follow along in the scriptures from Ruth that we'll be looking at. And also there's some blanks you can fill in to keep track of the points and what's going on there. You know, Ruth is usually thought of as a love story. When Benjamin Franklin was ambassador to France, he was part of a group called the Infidel Club who would read and discuss new works of literature. And uh, Franklin decided to read to them the book of Ruth. And what he did is he just changed some names and some details so they wouldn't pick up where it was from or any of that stuff. But when he was finished... That group decided that it was one of the most beautiful short stories ever written. And uh, he really enjoyed telling them that it was from the Bible. And so if you've never read the book of Ruth, again, just four short chapters, read it sometime this week. It really is uh, a great work. But generally, uh, when we read the book of Ruth, we tend to see it through the lens of Boaz, who's the kinsman redeemer in the story, a great picture of Jesus, more on that later. Or we see it through the eyes of Ruth, who is rescued from her desperate circumstances. But for our purposes uh, tonight, I want to view this book through the lens of Naomi, the third prime character in this story. So let me kind of give you some background, just in case uh, you're not familiar with this book. And even if you are, it's a good review. There is a, a famine that calls Naomi and her family to leave Bethlehem. And so they traveled east down the steep steep hills of Judea, and they crossed the Jordan River to, uh, to Moab. Now, Moab was an enemy of God's people. And so here this family is, um, Naomi and her family, they are Jews living in a godless country. And there, her two adult sons marry two Moabite, Gentile, non-Jews, pagan wives. Well, as the story progresses, due to just the extreme difficult economic circumstances that are going on, Naomi's husband and both of her sons die. Right? When it rains, it pours. Isn't that true? It's kind of like being caught in a bad country western song. You know, your wife dies, the barn burns down, and the dog dies, you know, that kind of thing. But there's nothing funny about Naomi's circumstances. I mean, this leaves three widows in one household in a day when there was no work for women. So it's desperate circumstances. And so Naomi decides that she's going to go back to Israel. And so she tells her two 
daughter-in-laws now who are widowed as well to, to return to their homes in hopes that they could maybe find new husbands there. Again, it's a male-dominated culture, and women, without a husband, they couldn't get a job, they couldn't own land, they really have no prospect of a future apart from just people's kindness to them, to take them in, to feed them, and so forth. And so Naomi, at the start of the story, is sad. I mean, she is hopeless that she has experienced great loss. And with this loss, she has really lost any sense of hope. She's so blinded by grief that she can't see any future good. And so, pick up with the story with me in chapter 1 then, verse 12. Naomi says, "'Return home, my daughters.'" I am too old to have another husband, and even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait around until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the, Lord hands, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And at this, they wept aloud again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So here's the first point I want you to get from this story, is just this, that loss happens. We live in a broken, fallen world. And when bad things happen, when difficult things happen, when tragedy happens, we want some sort of grand explanation for why it did. But here, here's what it is. It's just simply this, that the world that we live in, due to sin's entrance, is broken. It does not work the way God designed it to work. And so, loss happens. We will lose people that we love to death. We will be treated unfairly. We will be abandoned and discarded and left by people who no longer love us the way that we love them. And we will lose jobs and be passed over for promotions that we really deserve more than the person who got it. And we'll suffer the ravaging effects of illness and disease. And even, even just the passing of time, even just getting older. Anybody, anybody want to give witness to that being true? I remember when I was just a young buck in my 20s playing softball. I started playing softball in my teens and played, it, played well into my 40s. But I remember when I was in my 20s and I would play with, with guys who were much younger than me. But I would play with these guys who were older than me at 20, and they would whine and, you know, complain. And I would think, what a bunch of wusses, you know? But the truth of the matter is, uh, as I got older, I understood where they were coming from. See, we live in a broken, fallen world. And those things happen. Loss happens. But here's the second point that goes with it, is that grief, then, is a good and natural part of our losses. 
that grief really is the bridge that helps us cross over to what's next. You know, bridges are good things, aren't they? They help you get from here to there. But we weren't meant to live on the bridge, right? The bridge is just what gets us over something. It's not designed to be a destination, but it's very easy to get trapped on that bridge of grief. And so grief is part of the process. It's part of healing, but don't let it become your destination. And I want to let you know that one of the things that we offer around here semi-regularly is is a thing called grief care, which is just a short-term group for people walking through that grief. And our next one is coming up the end of uh, August, so that's a ways away. There's some of you, though, that maybe right now you want to make sure you get that on your calendar and plan to be a part of that when it happens. There's some of you right now who think, why would I want to be a part of that? That come the end of August, you'll want to be a part of that. But grief's a good thing. Grief is what helps us get from here to there. Secondly, though, or thirdly, though, is this point, that grief can easily blind us. And that's certainly what happens to Naomi here. I mean, can you hear it in these voices? Can you, I mean, in these verses, can you hear how her grief has really captured her? Well, the story continues. And Orpha, who, who um, is one of the daughter-in-law, she takes Naomi up on her advice and she goes back to her family. But Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, says no. She chooses not to abandon Naomi. And in this, these next verses we, uh, are, are verses we often hear at weddings, although I find it kind of humorous that these are not the words of newlyweds, but the words of a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. Here's what Ruth says. It says, Ruth, verse 16, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you, Or to turn back from you. For where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people. And your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And so Ruth makes that commitment To stick with Naomi, verse 18, it says, And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Which brings me to the fourth point. And it's this, that you need other people to walk through through grief with you. You need community. You need others. And you may want to circle this point because this is so important. Because our tendency when we're walking through grief is to pull back, isn't it? You know, to stop coming to church or to stop going to our small group. It's, it's our, our, our tendency of most of us in those times is to isolate ourselves. But that is the exact opposite of what we need when we're walking through grief. And I understand that. I understand why we do that. I understand why that's our tendency. You know, we get tired of having to keep answering, well, how are you doing? Right? 
And maybe the reason for your grief might have some other emotions attached to it. Maybe there's shame involved. Maybe there's uh, embarrassment. Maybe it's just the sheer fatigue of it all. And people, being around people, they tend to, to make us feel like we have to perform. You know, in answering all their questions when we really just want to recluse. But hear me, you need others. You need others to be with you when you're walking through grief. You need to be around people so that they will help you stay connected to the living. I was really taken back a few years ago, really learned so much from hearing Rick Warren uh, talk about what it was like walking through grief when his adult son committed suicide uh, just a couple years ago. And just, uh, again, how it just sucked the oxygen out of his very soul, and yet it was the people in his life. It was his small group. It was his close friends. It was his people who kept showing up, not to make him perform, not to ask him questions, but just to be around him. And let me just tell all of us, when people are going through that, they don't need words. They don't need healing comments. So I think that's, many of us, we're in that situation and we find ourselves wanting to say something that will make it all better. There is nothing that you're going to say that will make it all better. People don't need our words. They don't need our healing comments. Mostly what they need is our presence around them. Brene Brown says this. I think it's a great quote. She says, rarely does a reply make something better. It's our connection to them that makes it better. And so we need people. We need others who will walk through it with us. And by the way, let me just say this to you. If you're living your life now mostly in isolation, I mean, it's just you or it's just you and your spouse, or it's just you and your immediate family. Let me tell you, when you enter grief, that's a bad time to go hunting for community. Harvey McKay used to say, you have to, you have to dig your wells before you're thirsty. And so get into community. Make that connection because there will be a time when you're going to find yourself in grief and you need others. And when you find yourself in that time, don't let yourself listen to the voice inside of you that says, pull back. That's the time when you need to be around other people. You need other people who will walk through grief with you. You need community. Well, I want you to notice the depths of Naomi's pain as we just keep reading here. And I want you to listen, just listen for the honest, raw emotion. That Naomi conveys. Verse 19. It says, So the two women, that's Naomi and Ruth, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back 
empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Here's point number five. Is that it's okay to feel the pain of your loss and to express your raw emotion. It's okay to do that. And notice in these verses who Naomi blames. I mean, she says it several times, right? This is God's fault. God did this to me. And I'm going to tell you, that's okay to say that because God's big enough to take it. And this, let me just tell you, this is not the time to correct Naomi's theology. And by the way, we need to know this, that just because you feel something is true doesn't make it actually true, isn't that right? But in the moment, in the emotion, it is okay to feel what you feel and to fully express it. To let your pain have voice. And let me tell you, that's part of the value of having others in community is that they will listen uh, to you without feeling the need to correct you. In fact, isn't that the error that Job's friends made? Job was going through extreme grief and his friends showed up and they just sat with him for days. And then they opened their mouths and started correcting him. It's okay to feel that. Just because you feel it doesn't mean it's true. But God's big enough to take your raw emotion. In fact, read the book of Psalms. So many of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. And what you hear in there many times is David particularly, but others really saying some things that are very not spiritual. They're not what God would have them do. But on the way to surrendering themselves to do what God would have to do, they had to work through what they were feeling. It's okay. And I think what we see with Naomi is her journey from bitter to better. And that starts off with just her honest lament. Well, in chapter 2, Naomi and Ruth with her returned to Bethlehem, as we saw here, where Ruth gleans wheat from Boaz's field. It was kind of a welfare relief system for the needy that God had established, where uh, the... the um, The people would not take their harvesting all the way to the edges. They would leave the edges of the field so that those in need could come and glean what was left over, what wasn't taken. God had commanded them to not just wipe it out completely, but to leave this in place. And so Ruth is doing that. She's gleaning from Boaz's field in order to come up with enough food to help her and Naomi survive. Now, Boaz, who enters the story here, is a close relative. We'll see him come into much greater play. But he's a close relative of uh, Naomi's. And uh, so 
what you also see in chapter 2 is that you find out that Boaz has his eye on Ruth. And so, chapter 3, Naomi hatches a plan to help Ruth find a better future. Chapter 3, verse 1, says, One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. And so now Boaz, with whose women you have worked in a... Uh, with, with whose women you have worked is a relative of ours. And so tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. I have no idea what that means, but I assume it means he's gathering up the barley. And so she says, verse 3, Wash and put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes and then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. So point six I want you to see in this story is that it helps to begin taking your focus off of you and putting it onto someone else. You see, Naomi, who at first was, or earlier in the story, was consumed with her grief. All of her focus is on her. Now we start to see this turn where she starts to think, how can I help Ruth? How can I help her find a better way? How can I help her have her future? And so in our grief, it helps to begin taking our focus off of ourselves and putting it on to someone else. You see, rather than getting trapped in our own sorrow and self-pity, we see how we might serve somebody else. So verse 6 of chapter 3 this is what I call every mother-in-law's dream verse right here. It says, So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. And as a result, Boaz and Ruth have the talk. And Boaz then takes actions to clear the way for him to be able to marry Ruth. Now, for you to keep understanding the story, you have to understand this concept of a kinsman redeemer. I talked about it earlier, and it is such a beautiful picture of Jesus who redeems us from our hopelessness. You know, we believe around here that everything cover to cover in the Bible ultimately points to Jesus, and especially his work on the cross. And boy, this you certainly see this here. A kinsman redeemer was basically a near relative who had the right and the duty to redeem a ceased, I'm sorry, a deceased widow's land and so then to marry her if she didn't have any sons. Again, it was a male-driven culture. Women couldn't work. They couldn't own land without a husband. And so this was, again, part of the relief system that was set in place to help these widowed women. But in Ruth's case, the problem was there was another kinsman redeemer who was one step closer than Boaz was. And so Boaz had to meet with the other relative. And when he did, the other relative wasn't willing to pay the price that it would cost him 
to redeem Ruth. And so that cleared the way for Boaz to be able to do it. But you know, friends, here's what I want you to know. Here's the good news for each of us tonight. That Jesus, who was and is our kinsman redeemer, was willing to pay the price to redeem us. Aren't you glad? You see, our story is that we were and are hopelessly lost in our desperate circumstances. It's because we're sinful. And because of that, we are under the wrath of a holy God. There is no solution for us. Eternal damnation is our destiny. That is the truth of the story. But then, our kinsman redeemer stepped forward. And he paid the price with his own blood on the cross. So that we could be redeemed. Well, the price for Boaz wasn't his blood, but it was financial. And he pays that price so that he is able to redeem Ruth. And Ruth and Boaz marry. And in doing so, not only is Ruth's future secured, but who else's is? So is Naomi's. Verse uh, 13 and 14 of chapter 4. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer, May he become famous throughout Israel. Here's point number seven, is that God is the source of our rescue and hope. That God ultimately lays the way in this story for not only Ruth, but Naomi to be redeemed. And he is the one who makes it possible for us to be redeemed from our hopeless situation. Chapter Uh, 4 verse 15, the passage continues. And it says, He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your uh, daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given them birth, has, has given him birth. And then Naomi took the child in her arms and she cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And incidentally, he was the father of Jesse, who happened to be the father of King David. How about that? Naomi overcomes her sadness, and God redeems her loss and pain. Now, it doesn't go away. It doesn't stop hurting completely, but it does lessen. And God takes care of her and blesses her. She finds a new normal. And in this new grandbaby, Naomi's joy is restored. And that's my eighth point is this, that God will restore our joy. 
that her new normal is not merely a place of just getting through the day. There's joy. Well, as I said, at this weekend every year, we acknowledge our losses. And we want to do that tonight just to create some space here in the time that we have left. We want to acknowledge our losses over the past year. It's our custom to do that. And so this is going to be a time not only of worship, but a time that will allow for grieving and for mourning as well. And for choosing to take heart once more in the sovereign control of a loving God. Now, some of us, stay with me, have had huge losses in the past year. But some of us have had other losses that maybe aren't huge, but they were still losses just the same. You know, pain is pain, right? Loss is loss. And we need to grieve on our way to, again, being able to take up hope and find joy in God. And So maybe tonight... Your loss is not the physical death of a loved one, though it may be. Maybe it's the death of a dream that's happened to you this past year. Maybe it's the death of a desire. Maybe it was the death of a marriage. Or the loss of a job. Or your loss of health. Or the loss of a friendship, or a miscarriage, or a hundred other things. And so what we're going to do is we're going to continue to worship here. And we're going to create some space to give each other permission to mourn. And so what you can do as we're just singing is you can just slip out of your seat and come up here. And behind me there is all sorts of candles up here and some lighters. And for you to just light a candle, to create a memorial about your loss, that it's a symbol of your faith, that in this loss and grief, that what you're saying is, I'm wrestling on that journey to grab hold of hope in the God who ultimately restores our joy. And so I just want to invite you while we're doing that to come. It's also, again, Memorial Day weekend, and so we have flags up here as well. And I want to encourage you, if you have lost someone that you love in military service, then you come and you can light a candle for them and also just take one of those flags and hold that as just a remembrance to you of not only their sacrifice, but again, that ultimately there's hope on the other end, only in God who rescues us. And so I'm going to encourage you to do that. Why don't we stand and let me pray for us, and then we're just going to worship, and then you just feel that freedom. While we're doing it, if, you, if someone's up here and you want to come pray with them, you do that. If you want to stay up here for a while at the, at the candles, you can. If you, want to, if you want to just light it and go back to your seat, there is no rules. We just want to create this as part of our worship, this space for God to just work in us. And so Pray with me, would you? God, I just ask that you will meet us tonight in the place of our hurt. And help us find 
hope and joy in you. And I pray, Lord, that you would remind us again, remind us tonight that on the way, as we're crossing that bridge, it's a journey. Some of us are on the front end of that. Some of us are on the back end of that. Some of us are dead stuck in the middle. Some of us have been living on the bridge. Some of us, Lord, have denied the hurt, and we just need to bring it and acknowledge it. Give it to you. But Lord, my prayer again is that you will meet us right in the middle of our hurt, right in the middle of our loss, and help us on the way as we choose to wrestle with all that's involved and ultimately finding joy and hope in you. And so I pray this in your name, Lord, that you would receive our worship in this time in your name. Amen.